Amen. I can remember some of the real valleys in my life. Uh, looking back, it's kind of weird to think too much about your childhood. I just typically don't. But I remember my parents gathering us three boys together and saying, hey, we're going out for Chinese lunch. And that was a big deal. That we would go to a restaurant and go to a place that we had not gone to before was really a big deal. So we go into the Chinese restaurant and we sat down at this table. We were served our meal and dad said, we have an announcement to make. I can't remember if I was in second, third grade, somewhere along the lines there. And he told us three boys, you're going to have another brother or sister. And so as third graders, my brother being, older brother being two years older, my younger brother being two years younger, first, all the kind of curious things that come from little boys, like, what? Um, where? How? Dad probably didn't answer the how question in that moment. Okay, some of you can think about that later. But he told us, we're going to have a baby. It's going to happen. So we went home. And um, I started looking at mom's tummy, and I told her, it just looks like it's getting a little bit bigger. She said, no, it's not supposed to be. Don't say that about a woman or anything like that right now. (laughs) And a few weeks later, they called us back into the family room, and my mom was in tears, and my dad said, we've got bad news. And he broke down into tears, and it's one of the only times I remember my dad crying Together as a family, we had anticipated this new sibling, new son or daughter, and there was a miscarriage. And for some reason, it rocked my little world as a third grader-ish to the point that when I had to go to school the next day, mom sends a note to the teacher saying, hey, here's what's going on. Nate is a little emotional concerning things. Um, In our own particular family, I remember sitting down at Rainy Day Cafe with Josh Bilesma, I don't know, years ago. And as friends, you just ask the question, how are things going? And when you're going through something difficult, that's the last question you want to be asked, right? How are things going? Uh, And I felt my lips start to quiver, and I just dropped my head. And in our family, there was the risk of a disease Um, Doctors were concerned about one of the individuals in our family, and it was just rocking our world. There were times in ministry, and I've shared this from the pulpit, where there were times where I just wanted to throw in the towel and just be done, wanted to quit. I was hoping the pastors would tell me, yeah, your time's up, it's done. Just hard times in life. And again, it it begs the question from a Christian who believes in the word of God, God, why are you the all-loving and the all-powerful God sending me through these dark hours? We believe that you are out in front of us as the sovereign one determining the end and the beginning, and here we are in the middle. And so, God, why would you lead me into this kind of life right now? And for some of you, you're at that point. Um, Having talked with you, it has been a roller coaster for you. 
It's been a challenge for you. And, and so the question that keeps coming back, and it's a skeptical question from the world, is why would a good God, all-loving God, all-powerful God, send his children through dark hours? Well, last week we began a series in the book of Psalms for the month of August. And there are two significant aspects about the Psalms that you need to keep in mind. The first significant aspect is that the Psalms are prayers that relate to us on an emotional level, especially on the level of deep inward pain. Many of these Psalms were written by David when he was agonizing over the pressure he was facing or over the opponents or the foes that he was facing, whether it was King Saul that was trying to pin him to a wall, the Philistines trying to attack him, his son Absalom rebelling against him and causing all kinds of havoc. Other times it was because David was wandering into sin and God was bringing him through discipline in his life and that discipline was hard. And so David puts his experiences and his emotions down on paper for us. They're inspired by the word of God. And don't get me wrong, there are bright psalms. There are praiseworthy psalms. But so many of the psalms were written in such a way that give voice to the emotions, the dark, hard emotions of the soul. And it's helpful for us because God has given us an inspired word, an inspired template, an inspired prayer for us that when your soul is down and when you're searching for a way to express your pain, you go to the Psalms and you're like, I feel that right now and it's okay, okay for me to say these things to God. That's significant for us, that God gives us a voice to vent out the emotions of our souls here in the book of Psalms. The second significant aspect about the Psalms is that they often give hope in the midst of despair. So you read the Psalms and David takes you through that dark valley and you're saying, yeah, that's the way that I feel right now about this situation in life. I feel like I'm almost drowning now in these dark waters. But what David does after he catches your attention and resonates with your soul, he throws you a buoy. He throws you like a life preserver so that when you're out in these dark waters and you feel like, oh, this is it, I'm going under, he gives you a truth that sort of comes up underneath of you and pops you out again on top and says, okay, there's hope. I've got something to hold on to. And in every person's life, because we're humans and because we live in this world, there are going to be the dark days the dark years, the dark decades that are just hard and we need the hope of God's word. And so this morning we come to Psalm 6 and it's got both of those aspects. It's got the emotional, just, just heaviness to it. And then there is this buoy that comes up underneath of us and says, okay, here's hope for you. About this psalm, you might have in your Bible a note. It's a penitential psalm meaning that David is going to express sorrow over his sin. There are several of these throughout the Psalter or the book of Psalms. And David is combining his sorrow over sin with a plea that God would be gracious to him in the midst of it. Now there's five questions on your outline this morning that we're going to walk through. They will function as sort of handles for us as we go through this. We're going to spend a lot of time on the first one. Verse 1 leads us to our first question, where he says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Question number one is, what is God's wrath? What is God's wrath? Uh, the two statements, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, and discipline me not in your wrath, are what we would call parallel statements. 
Basically, they're the same truth stated two different ways in order to reinforce it on your heart. So what is God's wrath? What is God's anger that David is talking about here? When the Bible speaks of God's wrath, it is talking about his stern, holy response, inward and outward towards sin. It is his stern, holy response, inward and outward towards sin. One theologian who is dead now, Leon Morris, he states it this way. It's no capricious passion, but the stern reaction of the divine nature towards evil. So in short, wrath is the vengeance God takes towards all forms of wickedness. It's the vengeance that God takes towards all forms of wickedness and evil. You and I have responses towards sin. Sometimes it angers us when we see sin out in the world or sin that's been committed in front of us. Other times we have to confess sin humors us. You hear a dirty joke, you see something done that doesn't affect you directly, and it can be comical to our flesh. But with God, his response to sin is pure and consistent. It's wrath. Several passages I want you to see here. So we look at God's wrath. Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 7 and 8. He comes to Israel and he says, Even at Horeb you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. In Jeremiah we read, Behold the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head, and notice here, the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intentions of his mind. So here's God seeing wickedness and what is his response towards it? Anger and wrath consistently. Micah chapter 5 verse 15. The Lord says, and in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. So here's the disobedience. Here's the sin. What is God's response? Wrath. Romans chapter 2, verses 6 through 8. Speaking of the end, he will render to each one according to his works. For those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there's the sin, there's the wickedness, there will be wrath and fury. So if there's any question in our mind what God's viewpoint of sin is, here's the answer. Consistently, God looks at sin and wickedness and he has wrath or anger towards sin and wickedness. You look at episodes throughout the Bible. Genesis 6, the flood of the earth is an expression of God's wrath towards sin. You look at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. God was coming to those cities with wrath and anger toward their sin. You see Pharaoh's army giving pursuit of Israel Cross the Red Sea that God had divided, and here he is protecting his people, and here comes the nation of wickedness, and God closes in the ocean or the sea upon them and destroys them. Um, I don't know if you remember, but last year or so, I don't remember the exact time, we studied the book of Lamentations. And the city of Jerusalem had been sacked by the Babylonians. 
And Lamentations 4 verse 11 says, The Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger and he kindled a fire in Zion that consumed its foundations. Here was Jerusalem acting in wickedness and here was God's response. In Revelation 19 verse 15 we see a last picture of God's wrath. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so here is this winepress where the grapes have been gathered in. These grapes are symbolizing the nations. And here is the one who goes into the winepress and is smashing the grapes with his feet. And John is saying, here is Jesus who is returning and his words, the sword of his mouth, he can speak and judgment comes upon the nations. And so the conclusion should naturally be this for us all this morning. It is a terrible thing to experience God's wrath. To experience God's wrath is the horror of all horrors. You'd be better off standing at the rim of an erupting volcano this morning than to be under the outpouring of God's eternal, almighty wrath against sin. It's horrific. And David now, back to the psalm, is saying to God, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me, don't do it in your wrath. Now, we don't know the exact backdrop to what David is speaking of that he has done. Uh, the most notable sin in David's life was his adulterous relationship with Bathsheba. Um, some of you might not know the story. David's up on his palace roof, posh style, looks out across and sees this woman bathing and he calls her to his house, and his servants are saying, hey, isn't that the wife of Uriah? Don't mess with her. Brings her into his bedroom. She gets pregnant. So David deceptively invites Uriah home from the battlefield because he's a soldier fighting for a cause, and he wants it to look as though Uriah is sleeping with his wife, gets her pregnant, but Uriah is saying, man, I can't face the band if I go back to the battlefront and those guys know that I get to go home for a honeymoon and have fun with my wife. So he sleeps outside so that everybody knows he didn't go into his wife at all. And David's like, now I got a real problem on my hand because I've got a woman who's pregnant, a husband who won't sleep with her, and a few servants who know that I'm the one that did it. So now he goes from adultery to murder by sending Uriah back to battle. And oh, here's a dispatch for your general. Let him read it. General opens the dispatch. Hey, put Uriah on the front line of the battle. Push the front line all the way forward to the front. And then call everybody back around Uriah so he's left. And hopefully, and it works. So David is an adulterer and David is a murderer. He's guilty of sin, and he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, and he knows that God is responding to him. And all kinds of consequences and repercussions are coming upon David, so he's looking at God Almighty. It's like his heart sees the perspective of sin now that God sees, and he's saying, God, rebuke me not in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. 
So question number one is, what is God's wrath? It's his response to sin. Question two, does God's wrath fall upon his redeemed people? Does God's outpouring towards sin fall upon his redeemed people? Okay, we have the whole Bible to consider here. John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Okay, there's one truth here. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Okay, so you have two opposites here in John chapter 3, verse 36. Those who believe in the Son have the gift of eternal life, and those who do not believe in the Son of God are going to have the wrath of God upon them forever and ever. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. The Apostle Paul says, We, past tense, were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were there. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Okay, so now you're starting to see this difference between the wicked and the redeemed. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 9. Here's another text for us to look at. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So we have a picture here. We have the wicked who have not received the Son of God, John chapter 3. We have the children of wrath, like the rest of mankind over here. And then we see over here, on the other hand, that now the Son of God, those who have the Son of God have life, and those who have experienced the grace of God have life, And those who are saved are not destined for God's wrath, but are destined for salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when God's people enter into sin, David is saying, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. The question is, does God's wrath fall upon the people of God? And we would have to say no. As Christians now living on this side of the cross, we know that the wrath of God toward our sin, which we deserve because God is a holy God and his response to sin is wrath, we know that there has been a substitute who stood in our place, that is the Son of God. So Jesus comes as our Savior And God pours out his wrath upon him, and Jesus stands in our place so that we're protected from the wrath of God. Whoever receives the Son of God is under the umbrella protection of Jesus Christ so that the wrath of God has been poured out on Jesus and not us. If we're out from underneath the Son of God, we will experience the wrath of God forever and ever. And what the New Testament is very clear about for us is The redeemed have no need to fear the wrath of God. So then, here's the question. David, one of the redeemed, 
one of those who are in the covenant community of God's people, the question is, why would David ask God, don't rebuke me then in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath? If, if God's people are not going to experience the wrath of God, why would David ask God not to pour it out on him? So that's question number three. Why does David ask God to not discipline him or rebuke him in anger or wrath? Why is David concerned about God's wrath. All right, let me look at the next few verses quickly. We're going to move through that, and then I'll give you the answer here. Notice David's heart as we move through these. Verse 2, be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. My bones are greatly troubled, meaning that the deepest part of who he is is experiencing heaviness. He's asking for grace. Grace is that undeserving kindness that God would give to his people. In verse 3, he continues on and says, My soul, the deepest part of who I am, is greatly troubled. And then notice at the end of verse 3, But you, O Lord, and then there's, it just kind of cuts off, How long? He, just, he, he comes to the end of himself and he's like, I, I almost don't have anything more to say, so I'm just going, How long? I can't even go any further. Verse 4, David says, turn, O Lord, and deliver my life. So look at that word, turn. It's as though God has turned his back on David, and David is over here saying, but God, listen to me. It's like your back is facing me. I need you to turn. I need you to look at me right now. He goes on to say and ask that God would save him through his steadfast love. And last week we talked about that term steadfast love, something just to tuck away. The Hebrew term is hased. It's, it's the kind of love that is committed. It's that covenantal love where I enter into a relationship with you and I'm not going anywhere. Even if things aren't romantic and fuzzy, this is covenantal love. It should be at the center of every marriage. If things aren't great, I'm still committed. If things go messy, I'm still committed. It's not the romance that's keeping us together. It's the committed love that's keeping us together. And David is saying, you've told me that you're committed to me with this kind of hesed love. In verse 5, it gets even more heavy where he says this, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, the place of the dead, who will give you praise? God, I'm sliding down this hill, and it seems like I'm about ready to go over the cliff into the place of the dead. And by the way, God, once I'm there, I, I can't give you praise. Won't you keep me alive? Won't you rescue me from this trial that I'm going through? And in verses 6 and 7, he hits bottom when he says this, I am weary with my moaning. Every night, I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my weeping. Verse 7, my eye is wasting away because of grief. It grows weak because, and here it is, of all my foes. And so you, he, you see this picture where David is bloodshot in the eyes because he is weeping so much. He is in anguish. And he can even say, God... Um, this is happening because my foes are coming in. And remember verse 1, he's saying, 
Rebuke me not in anger. I know I need rebuke. Discipline me not in wrath. I know I need the discipline. Just don't do it in anger and wrath. David knows that he has sinned and God is using foes in his life in this way. So the question still stands. Why is David voicing his prayer about God possibly acting toward him in his anger and wrath when we said that God does not bring his anger and wrath upon his people? Like, why would he ask that? Well, remember what I said about the Psalms at the beginning? They are an outlet for the emotions of the soul. They're an outlet for what we feel so many times. They are a right outlet for us. They give voice to what we are feeling. What is David feeling right now? He's feeling as though he is not one of God's redeemed people. He's feeling as though he's not part of God's covenant community. He's feeling like that committed love that has established and fixed the relationship between God and his people. He's like, I feel like I'm outside of that committed love. Move it on this side of the cross and we can use this sort of language. He feels as though God has not saved him. Ever feel that way? Ever feel like life has so many challenges that are just cascading over onto your life that you wonder, God, I see Nate every Sunday and he kind of looks like he has life together and he's a Christian. And life is kind of going okay for him. At least it looks like it. But then there's me. There's me this week, this month, this year, the last 25 years of my life, and God, my life doesn't really look like his life or this other person's life or this other person's life. Am I even saved? That's why David can say this. Discipline me not in your wrath because, God, it feels like I'm one of these people that you would vent or pour out your wrath on because of all of life's challenges. That's why David can say it. The Psalms are a place where we can say, this is what I'm feeling right now. This is what's going on. It's stirring up in my soul. So now we know that he's giving vent to his emotions and his feelings. But it leads us to ask another question. Question number four. What is God's design for discipline? By the way, we know the answer to question number three is feeling. You can read through the Psalms and find those Psalms of praise. You can read through the narrative portions of David's life, and he, he comes around. He knows he's part, uh, a part of God's covenant community. But here's David now. And he is in a situation where he is receiving rebuke or discipline from God. What is God's design for discipline? Well, what is discipline? Question number four. What's, what is this? It's God's way of training his people to walk in relationship with him. Uh, discipline here is 
a training period, a formative period that God takes us through. Now, there are two types of discipline, at least, that you could see in Scripture. Number one is formative discipline, and a second discipline is corrective in nature. So we could differentiate a little bit here that there is formative discipline and there is corrective discipline. Let's talk about formative discipline for just a minute. I've been watching a lot of Olympics lately. Uh, for me, our family, sometime around 8, 9 o'clock, summertime, we can stay up late. We go downstairs and we turn on the Olympics and there we are watching these empty stadiums and these incredible athletes. Now, every athlete in the Olympics is going to have a coach. Uh, these platform divers, I don't know if you watch that. Here's this little 14-year-old girl from China that goes up on this 10-meter platform, which is 33 feet tall, concrete, and sometimes she just tiptoes to the back and her heels are hanging off and she's dancing a little bit like this, and then she just jumps backwards and does somersaults, flips through the air. And then one time she goes back and she puts her hands down on the platform, does a handstand on the platform, and then jumps with her hands off the platform, a few flips that I could never dream of doing, all the way down to the bottom and does this 10 out of 10 dive. Now, that diver or any other athlete in the Olympics didn't just get to that point from yesterday to today. All of those athletes need a coach in their life who is, you know, metaphorically speaking, putting their hand in the small of their back and pushing them along, saying, okay, you need to get back up on that ladder, get back up to the top. Now, this time, I want you to work on your tuck. This time, I want you to work on your lines. This time, I want you to keep your sight clean. I want you to be able to see things more clearly. And each time, this coach is coming back along, and you can be sure that those athletes each time are saying, this is heavy, this is hard. If you've played any sports or any, been involved in any athletics, you know that a coach is coming along and nudging you forward to correct things that are taking place in your life, but also to form you better, to get you from step A to step B. And this is what we could call formative discipline. God comes into your life. It's not because sin is there. It's just because you're human. And every human needs to grow. And God looks at you and he says, I'm going to bring about growth in your life so that you don't stay in infancy. So a classic text is James 1, verses 2 through 4. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces... There's that kind of forming process. It produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. All right, so God is putting us into discipline. Again, this is not because of sin here. This is just formation. This is the coach coming to the diver and saying, you haven't done anything wrong. I'm just getting you from step A to B. We're getting you from this point to the next so that you are producing more, that you are complete, lacking in nothing. And that's what God is doing in each of our lives. It could be a sickness that popped into your life out of nowhere. It could be a person who presents a real challenge in your life. It could be all the adjustments that come with a career change. It could be 
COVID just popping up in your family in an unforeseen way. God is using trials of various kinds, just like a coach uses trials of various kinds, practices of various kinds, in order to produce endurance. He is maturing you in your life. That's formative discipline. There's also corrective discipline. This is the kind of discipline that comes into our lives because we need to be corrected from sinful patterns. This is where David is. He stole a man's wife. He shacked up with her, killed her husband. And for a while, he had no ounce of repentance in his heart. So he's heading down this very bad path. And you look at it and you're like, whoa, who's going to stop this guy? He's destroying people's lives. What is he going to do next? It's a dangerous place to be. And so God steps in, the almighty, all-loving God, and he corrects David with discipline. Hard things come into his life. According to verse 7 in Psalm 6, God sends foes into his life in order to bring him back to God. So let me ask you a question. Does a good father... Let his son wander around in behavior that will destroy others, hurt himself, make himself miserable. Does a good dad just say, okay, go ahead, roll another joint, son. Go for it. Keep on being selfish with that lousy attitude. You know, it's okay for you to cheat your way through life. Does a good dad just stand back and say, well, there's nothing wrong with that, or I'm just going to let him go on his own. No, a good dad who loves his son or daughter has safe boundaries for that son or that daughter to live in. And outside of those boundaries, it's just wrong. And it's bad for that child. And so when a dad sees the son or daughter crossing over those boundaries and walking out in disobedience, a dad is going to come back and correct that child, that son or daughter. A dad starts seeing that selfishness and responds with corrective discipline because it's going to be wrong and hurtful for the child and it's going to be right for that discipline to push that child back into the boundary of safety. And that's what God can do for us. He will send corrective discipline into our lives. He's not going to settle for us being disobedient. And he is also using this to grow us. We need God's discipline in our lives. And so specifically in Psalm 6, David is facing corrective discipline in nature. He has sinned. He's done what's wrong. And God is coming alongside of him. But let's step back. Sometimes we don't always know why the situation is coming into life. I think it would be wrong for us to say, man, every time something hard comes into my life, it must be corrective discipline. No, no, no. We've seen that God uses formative discipline as well. So let's look at our fifth question and round out our sermon with this. How is God good in discipline? How is God good in discipline? One thing that we need to keep in mind here is that we must be careful that we do not impose our experience of our earthly discipline from our parents onto God. 
By that I mean at some point you experienced discipline from, I'll say, your dad. He may have disciplined you with a bottle in one hand and a fist in the other. Or you spilled Kool-Aid on his favorite chair, and when he disciplined you, he was taking out a selfish anger because he loved that chair more than anything, and you were just the object of his anger. Now, that's not God. God sees you, and he forms you. Might not be any sin there at all. He just says, okay, it's time, Nate. It's time for me to move you from this level of maturity to the next. And I'm going to bring a formative discipline like a coach into your life. Other times he says, Nate, I love you. You've been walking in apathy towards me. And so I'm going to send corrective discipline into your life. How is God good in giving you and me discipline? either formative or corrective. How is God good in that the all-powerful, all-loving God is sending trials into my life? Three things. Number one, he is demonstrating love toward you. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Why is God disciplining his children? Either corrective Sin has been involved, or formative. It's just time to grow up, son. It's because he loves his children. I have a sister, 14 years younger than me. So when I was 15 or 16, she was one or two. And I remember her crawling through, walking through the kitchen, heading towards the stove. And my dad picked her up, and she knew enough to know what he was saying to her without having all the vocabulary that's needed. You know, you you see those little kids and you know that they know what you're talking about even though they can't articulate. So she's heading towards the stove. He picks her up and he says, no, no, do not go towards that stove. And he brings her back over to the living room, sets her down on the carpet and gives her an opportunity to play over there. What does she do? She stands up and toddles back into the kitchen and makes a beeline to the stove. And I can't remember if he did it one more time or not. That's not the point. Eventually she did it, and he swoops in, not angry, puts her up on his little big arm there, her little body, and gives her swat, swat. And here come the tears. I mean, here comes the crying from one two-year-old drama queen sister, all right? I'm the 15, (laughs) 16-year-old. He brings her out into the living room, sets her back there, and she's okay. Now, if my dad were not loving, he would say, I'm just going to let you make a beeline to the stove and you're going to bear the marks of a burn now for the rest of your life. So what God does is he sees his children who are walking and needing correction or needing form, but the point is this, my dad came to her because he loved her. In the moment My sister was probably like, oh, no, 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 with her one to two-year-old mind. But everybody who could see the perspective would say, that was the right thing to do. You see, when God comes into our lives with discipline of any kind, formative or corrective, it's a reminder that God has not given up on you. He loves you. If he let you run the way that you wanted to, That would be a hands-off dad who says, I really don't care about them. I'm just involved in myself. And by the way, dads, moms or dads, this should be a model, a template, an example that when you look at your children, especially when our culture is like 
anti-discipline of any kind, you need to be specifically involved with your children, loving them to the point that you're going to step in and keep them from wandering into sin. Does it feel like God's angry at you in that moment? It can, it can. But the text is saying, God is doing this out of love because he cares for you. Second way that we see God's goodness is that God is giving us holiness. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and you're not sons. Okay, so here's what the text is saying. A father is responsible to bring discipline into his children's life. Mother as well, okay? So here's a father that is responsible, and if there's no discipline in that child's life, it's as though that child does not belong. It's an illegitimate son. So if you are left without discipline from God in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. So a father who responds to his children and disciplines them later sees the fruit of that with children who say, thank you, dad, for doing that. Now, the writer of Hebrews says, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he, that is the father, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. So what is God doing here? He's saying, I want you to be partakers of my holiness. So here is God who is completely separated from sin, meaning that he is holy, set apart from sin, and he looks at us who can be drifting towards sin, following the currents and just going along with them towards sin, and he says, no, 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 wait a second, that is not good for you. I want you to be partakers in something that is good, that is myself. And so when God says, I'm bringing you into discipline so that you might be partakers of my holiness, what is one truth that we see about God? I mean, you could come up with a number of answers right now, but one truth that we see about God is that he is life. For us to be a partaker of God, for us to be moving back to God, for us, for God to be saying, I'm pulling you back to myself, away from sin, towards myself, I'm disciplining you so that you're formed or corrected more unto me, is actually life-giving for us. And you've seen children who have parents who set those boundaries well, you look at them and you say, there's life. Like, they know how to live within those boundaries. And of course, we all are like, whoa, have I failed miserably sometimes with that as a parent. But bigger picture is that God is pulling you toward himself, which is the best place for any child of God to be, a partaker in his holiness. Third area of goodness is found in verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's true. We get that. Corrective or formative, it seems painful. You're going through something right now. You're like, I don't want to be under the weight of this right now. I trust that God is still in sovereign control, but it is hard. But notice later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. What does it yield? God is producing righteousness. This is the third goodness. He is producing righteousness in you. Um, you ask a kid, what do you want to be when you grow up? 
They're going to say, oh, I want to be a truck driver, or I want to be the president, or I want to be an NFL player, or I want to be a princess. They have all of these things about what they want to be when they grow up. But then when it comes to our Christian lives, one of the questions that we should be asking is, what does God want me to be? What does God want me to be as I grow up? And the writer of Hebrews is saying, he is aiming to produce righteousness in you. He's aiming to make you more and more mature. He's, he's aiming to produce this pattern of life so that you're conformed into the image of the Savior, Christ, more and more. And this is a good thing for each and every one of us. Coaches continually coming back to the athlete, refining the athlete, kind of chipping off some of the errors that are there, helping them move from one point to the next. This is God. He's producing righteousness. So when you step back from Psalm 6, the weight of it in verse 1, God rebuke me not in your anger nor discipline me in your wrath. You study this theme of discipline and you're like, okay, I can resonate with where David is. And then as you study out this theme of discipline or correction or formation, you can say, God truly is good. It's hard. It, it really is hard. But you can step back and you can say, okay, I can see this. I can see this principle. I can see this truth. And now I want to respond to it with belief, with humility. And some of you are going through what I started with this morning, like those dark hours, those dark days. Right now, some of you are in the midst of it as believers in Christ. And your feelings can go one direction. God, are you there? Is this your anger or wrath? And on the other hand, you come back to this truth, and David is confident at the end of the psalm that this will come to an end. Paul, in the book of Romans, says those whom he justified, he's also going to glorify. It will come to an end. The writer of Revelation says that there's a day coming where he will wipe away every tear, the mourning, the crying, the hurt will be done. And so we hold on to this truth that this indeed is hard. But God, you are still a good, loving God who is bringing me along, drawing me closer to yourself. And as children, we should be responding with humility and faith. I trust you, God. I'm going to trust you. Let's pray.